Hello, and welcome to The Long Road to Ruin. I am special interim guest host Robert Winfrey, filling in for Mr. Mark Radlich as he's taking a temporary sabbatical from podcasting. And that music was the correct music. Those of you who were here last time, I did not have the proper Hellraiser, Hellraiser theme, so I opened with the one from Halloween. There was much consternation and aggravation on the part of co-host and co-founder of the series, Sean Comer, and rightfully so. That was the correct music, so I feel good about myself, especially since I had to sift through a bunch of the Coil versions to find the correct one. So, yay me. But tonight, we are talking still about Hellraiser. For those, of us, for those of you who were here last time, we talked about the good entries into the franchise. We talked about Hellraisers 1, 2, and 5, because they are good movies. They're, we heap praise upon them. We talked about why, we, why they work, why we love them. The whole nine yards. And all was good and happy and joyful with the world. Well, at least as joyful as it is with, you know, Cenobites yanking people apart with hooks. This week, on the other <coughs> hand, we have a different setup. We're talking about the other six movies in the franchise. We're talking about the bad ones. And not just the bad ones, the awful. And then there's Hellraiser Revelations. But we'll get to that. We're going to go kind of in chronological order here. And this is all going to build to a glorious eruption of all of our rage at what came out in the ninth Hellraiser movie. But I'm not here alone. There is the regular, the co-host, the co-founder, the man who provides all the useful insight and all of the things that you actually tune in to listen to. And let me bring him out, Sean Comer. It's your show. I'm just guest hosting. How are you doing tonight? Three things, folks. Number one, that opening theme music you heard after the Foo Fighters, that's the closest anything we... Anything is going to feel to Hellraiser on this show. Um, number two, I don't normally bother with this before a show because I think most of our audience is used to it. In this case, I feel the need to stress it. This rant is going to contain loads of adult language. And by adult language, I mean I'm going to say fuck. A lot. A whole lot. A lot, lot. Don't let the kids listen to this one unless you want to have an interesting car ride to school tomorrow. And uh, number three, I kind of actually have to break character for a moment and issue just a real short apology based not on having been nagged into it, having been coerced, having been shamed into it, but just based on my own conscience for something that I didn't exactly handle appropriately on last week's show. Uh, During last week's show, I referred in passing to the sequel Hellraiser Debtor, and I made a particular comment about Kari Wurr's performance in the movie and happened to say something to the effect of, in this movie, she didn't even... She didn't even have the lovely breast implants to help get her through the performance. Uh, For those of you who are unfamiliar with, oh, late 80s, mid-90s cinema do crap, uh, Kari was kind of a a direct-to-video favorite who was just kind of known for being a pretty face, a nice body, and not 
really a whole lot else in terms of acting ability. Oh, and I might also add, yes, she was also on sliders as well. Uh, for those of you who are, for those who remember the many times Fox has fucked sci-fi squarely in the ass, um, that remark, uh, at the time, I was really trying a bit hard to come up with a joke, and unfortunately, I happened to forget that this movie was actually made several years after Kari's breast implants had unfortunately encapsulated and had to be removed. Um, that was a very, that was extremely tasteless, ill-timed joke to make in the best of times. Because really, I try not to make cosmetic matters or appearance the subjects of my jokes because I think it's, it's a kind of boorish, low-hanging fruit for the most part. And I just feel like I'm better than that. I feel like our show is better than that. But in this case, I kind of lost my head for a second and I went for it. And that's, that's not something I should have been making light of, especially during Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And actually, really, to be perfectly honest about my opinion... Number one, okay, I exaggerate a little bit about how lacking her performance is. Actually, it really wasn't half bad considering the script she was given to work with. Uh, and also, there's the fact that for a woman who's actually had her appearance drastically altered by a medical emergency, she actually bears her breasts a number of times throughout the movie, and that's that I imagine has got to take at least a little bit of courage. She even went along with the fact that one of the lines involves another character, uh, a side character, actually making the joke at one point, are those real? So I want to apologize. I don't think to my knowledge I actually offended anybody, but... I apologize that I stooped that low and I made light of something that to somebody else was definitely no laughing or joking matter. So. Well, thank you for all of that, Sean. And, you know, this seems to be the year of kind of ill-timed uh, circumstances like that for anyone who's a fan of DC Comics and they put out the artist search with hey, let's draw Harley Quinn committing suicide during National Suicide Prevention Month. Yeah. Well, and you know what? Um, I was actually just having a conversation with one of our fans um, on uh, on Facebook the other day about just this, about kind of what happens when snark goes a little bit overboard. And one of the things I mentioned was how sometimes some people get a little bit too, like I said, a little too in the character, and they kind of lose track of where that line of good taste is and where the line is where the character says something that you, the person, are going to feel the pangs of conscience about later. Uh, I've, I've seen it, and in this case, even though I had a few other people tell me, okay, you really don't owe anybody an apology for it. It wasn't that bad. I don't think anybody was really offended. Well, it's one of those where, okay, nobody else may realize it, but I realize it. So I'm I'm just going to kind of indulge that a little bit. 
just well. Hey, I tend to take apologies that come for, in my personal and you know elsewhere. If you give me an apology because I feel I deserve one and you don't feel I deserve one, then you know that's just to make me happy. And if you get if you give an apology because you feel you need to give one, you know, giving one because you feel you need to is especially if you know no one else makes a big deal out of it. It's you know it, it's a it's a statement of character and. For as much right, as we right. do like to snark here from time to time, and we aren't terribly PC. Uh, <laughs> okay, I couldn't say that with a straight face, but for all of that, you know, uh, there. I apologize for not a single fucking goddamn thing I'm going to say in the last 45 minutes of tonight's show. I will not be held responsible. You may hold the Weinstein brothers squarely responsible for this one, friendos. Not me. All right, and with that out of the way, we're going to jump right in, because when we did the good Hellraisers, a bit of, just a brief bit of backtracking for everyone here, we st- we did the good ones, which comprise of, Sean and I arrived at, Hellraisers 1, 2, and 5, which are the good, the watchable, the enjoyable, the, cla- you know, they're the good ones. If you're showing people Hellraiser movies, 1, 2, and 5, you can't go wrong. Three, four, six, seven, eight, nine, not so much. But we deliberately jumped over because Hellraiser 5 takes place... Three and four follow the continuity of one and two in terms of linear. It's a direct sequel. After Hellraiser 4, you get into kind of spiritual sequels or what else can we do within the Hellraiser universe, or, hey, here's a half-decent script, let's slap the Hellraiser name on it and speed it into production, we'll film it in two weeks, and we'll have the Hellraiser name to give it legitimacy and see if we can make some money direct to DVD sales. But, so, you understand, when we talk about 3, which is where we're starting here, and some of the many issues that it has, and some of the good points, because there are good points to Hellraiser 3, I feel, this takes, Hellraiser 3 picks up Pretty much after Hellraiser 2. I, I'm not quite sure what the exact timeline is. It's sometime after Hellraiser 2 has taken place. And 4 will follow that in chronology, and then we just get random entries into the series. So, let's talk about Hellraiser 3. We have a new lead cast. Well, we still have Doug Bradley as Pinhead. But you have a new heroine in distress new actress, you do get a brief appearance from Ashley Lawrence as Kirsty Cotton when the main character, who's a reporter, is doing research on the Lament configuration, and you have the configuration is, for those of you who saw the end of Hellraiser 2, the the big piece of wood comes up and it slowly rotates and it has hooks and chunks of meat and people's faces on it. That somehow became a large sculpture that is purchased by a nightclub owner because he likes macabre things. And apparently the actual essence of Pinhead and everyone is trapped within it, so when blood gets on it, because, hey, it's a Hellraiser movie, there's always someone in the real world who gets bloody and then drops it somewhere where it's not supposed to be. He then convinces nightclub owner, look, I need more blood to become free of this clay imprisonment, which is... Only a half-decent sculpture anyway. But, you know, 
a lot of what made the first two Hellraisers, There Is No More, you have a lot of people who weren't associated with the first two. So this is this is kind of where things start going downhill, and then you get to five, which is an aberration, wonderful aberration, but, you know, you have bad movie, bad movie, great movie, several bad movies. So uh, let's start with Hellraiser 3, and I want to start positive here because there are good points to it, and then we can segue into the negative. So what do you like about Hellraiser 3? I'm just curious because I have some points about it that I like. I just want to hear yours, John. Well, for starters, there's the fact that actually, as plots go, it's not exactly the worst idea in the world. It's it's really not all that bad, because at the end of Hellraiser 2, uh, most of oh, Pinhead's entire Cenobite army is poof, gone, destroyed, never to menace. Yeah, men uh, the, the Charnard Cenobite destroyed them all. He returned yes. them to their human form and then killed them. Yes, exactly. They're gone. Um, so if you've got to find a way to kind of work Pinhead back into this movie and have him regain some power, this is not the worst way to go about it. It's, it is a little bit silly watching Doug Bradley's face talking <laughs> at its new owner from the Pillar of Souls. Um, it kind of reminds me of the end of the Doctor Who episode, Love and Monsters, and seeing Moaning Myrtle reduced to a blowjob-giving slab of concrete. <laughs> Some of you who have never watched new Doctor Who and who, are, who have been curious about it, I am not kidding. That is an episode. That happens. Even crazier, I have actually had some people tell me the episode is not that bad. And, Tara, Jeremy, you know who the hell you are. Well, you know, but, Whovians, they they can justify anything. Yeah, but in this case, oh, and believe me, we do. We're, we're second only to Lost fans in that regard. And Bronies. Anyway. Um, so, no, that, that's actually not the, not the worst concept in the world, is Pinhead kind of having to work behind the scenes a little bit and really be just kind of a more subtle corrupter rather than just kind of being the... He's more of the... Um, how do I want to put this? He's more of the snake in the garden of Eden than the spider waiting for the fly to flutter into his web. And it's a nice change. It really is. It's just... And actually, most of the movie is not... It's not Hellraiser or Hellraiser 2 good. But it's not as bad as everything that would come after it. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the performances are not, are not that bad. Like I said, it's not the worst concept in the world. Um... It does tend to move a little bit slowly, but I can't even really complain all that much about the pacing. Unfortunately, I also have to put it in the bad category because, number one, I can't really say I enjoyed watching it all that much. And number two, oh yes, I can point squarely and directly at the last 20 minutes of this movie at the point wherein all others must abandon all hope before moving on. 
because that is where it started to get stupid. Yeah. Now, to kind of go with, now let me say this, just as a brief aside. When the, the story behind this is, Hello? Uh, Robert, you still there? The hell? If we're still in the air and people have actually heard me talking to myself, I'm actually legitimately sorry. Okay, Sean, you there? 
Yeah, are you there? All I kept hearing yeah. was the occasional muted. Okay. Blog, blog Talk decided to have a substantial issue there. Blow me, Blog Talk. Okay, so to kind of go Wait, back and recap. Holds you wretched app. To kind of backtrack and you know restate what I just said in case it didn't get in or in case you missed it, Sean, I just kind of went on a brief rant about the last 15 minutes of Hellraiser 3, Pinhead deciding he has to make fun of a Catholic priest. Hey, look, he oh, made yeah. he made Cenobites, including someone with a, who throws CDs. And hey, that's a wrap after, with the camera guy. Just the whole mess that is the conclusion of Hellraiser 3. Oh, yeah. Stop me if you've heard this one. Pinhead walks into a church... That whole sequence is just so completely and wholly unnecessary. I mean, you, you almost nothing, nothing benefits from it. You you almost you almost expect any minute for Pinhead to just pipe up and say, "Oh, I've got a million of them." Yeah, it's just yeah. What's going it, on there? It is Pinhead as interpreted by Jerry the King Lawler. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's okay. Let me say this: it makes a degree of sense for the main character who is running from Pinhead to flee into a church. That makes a degree of sense to me. Not just because Pinhead is pseudo demonic, but because you know it's late at night and church and, a, and churches are always open and there's always somebody there. But for Pinhead to then feel the need to you know again mock a Catholic priest, he pulls out pins from his head and sticks them through his palms and mocks the traditional crucifix. I mean, there's just, you almost look at that and go, what the hell? And you made, you know, the bartender who now throws a weak Molotov cocktail at police officers. He's now a Cenobite. (laughs) The Cenobite DJ with the CDs. Ugh. I mean, that... That whole final sequence to me is just, it's beyond ridiculous. There's no redeeming quality anywhere in the last 20 minutes. I mean, am I wrong? No, no. The sad part part is you're absolutely, absolutely right. It, It becomes almost like a family guy sketch. And uh, I'm a good yeah. guy. And yeah, when I saw, when I saw DJ Cenobite, which I swear is the name of an industrial metal fusion artist out there somewhere, probably. Uh, when I saw the CD sticking out of the head, I knew it. I just went, "You're gonna th- you're gonna throw deadly decapitating CDs at somebody, aren't you?" And yep, there you go. There goes the decapitation. And, you know, I mentioned this before, and you and I have different opinions on the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise and Freddy Krueger and things like that that will be brought up at some point. And, again, having different opinions is not the end of the world. For me, the Cenobite extending his camera lens, smashing it through someone's head, and then going, that's a wrap, is worse than Freddy going, you're prime time now, bitch, and smashing the girl's head through a television set. 
God. I don't I mean, know. I, I even have a specific reason. The Cenobites are not jokesters. They don't make jokes. Freddy made jokes. I don't care much for that one, and don't get me wrong, I understand why people don't like it. But that's not wholly and completely out of character for Freddy Krueger. It's just a bit of poor screenwriting. This is completely and wholly out of character for what any Cenobite has ever done. And I wish DJ Cenobite was the worst one. Oh, God, no. He's not, and we'll get there when we talk about the next movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, I already have a pretty good have pretty good guesses which of the Cenobites in um, in Bloodlines you could possibly be talking about. There's a few of them that could qualify, folks. There are two things, two things right off the top of my head that I could think of that when your horror franchise has to resort to them, you know that you have tapped the well dry of the good ideas. Number one, when you send your franchise into space. This never goes well. At least Jason X was just willfully bad. That, that was just New Line just being bored and realizing, well we got to make something to keep the rights with us. And, oh, we'll get to that conundrum. Yeah. Um, you know, like you said, at least Jason X was fun. When everyone yeah. knows you're making a bad movie and everyone has fun with it, it becomes endearing. Yeah, it becomes exactly. watchable. On the other hand, you've also got movies like Leprechaun in Space. Or... Yeah. Poor Warwick Davis. Davis. The, man, the man deserves so much better. Um, that's, that's problem number one. Problem number two is when you start getting into excessive backstory. <laughs> Prequels. Backstory, backstory that nobody ever asked to know. That, no, that was really burning in absolutely no one's mind. It is, to quote one of my favorite lines from The Simpsons, an answer to a question that nobody asked. Hey, back off my sister, man. Oh, I'm sorry, dude. Don't have a cow, man. Here's a catchphrase for your adult years. Hey, buddy, got a quarter. <laughs> I actually know that whole <laughs> spiel when Ned goes off it. I've quoted it before, but... <laughs> Oh, I just love that. I just love that one line because it was just when you had been waiting for somebody to tell Lisa her season got <laughs> in. Finally, someone did it. And it was absolutely as wonderful as you ever imagined it would be. But Especially coming from Ned Flanders. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, Ned but, you, know, fin- you and I, as fa- horror fans in general, have a, should have, by this point in time, a low tolerance for the prequel idea because it rarely goes well. Oh, yeah, but the only thing is, here's the catch, kids. In this movie, they took two horrible tastes and showed us all that they taste ridiculous together. Oh, yes. Yes. And you can throw in the sprinkle on top, the multiple storyline movie. Oh, Jesus. Okay, for those of you who have never seen Hellraiser Bloodline... 
The movie starts out in the future, I want to say like 2099 or something. I Don't quote me on it, but in the future, in space, with you know the horrible voice and everything, is the last of the Le Marchand line. And he is doing his damnedest to destroy the Cenobites and the Lament configuration forever. To kind of facilitate this, he has it brought to him by smugglers who then become angry because they want to know what the hell is going on. So the creator of this space station sits down with the captain and then explains the backstory, which is not limited to, well, in the 1700s, I had an ancestor who built this demonic puzzle box for a demon-obsessed, hedonistic count in France somewhere. Oh no, that would be bad enough. He also has to tell the story of how following... The Lament configure at the end of Hellraiser 3, primary, the main character, and I forget the character's name, pushes the Lament configuration into a bunch of wet cement to hide it. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. the cement is the foundation for a building, which then kind of becomes a potential gateway portal into the, de- into the depths of hell, which is where the, what would have been the modern storyline is going on, with another member of the family line trying to stop it which of course inevitably fails, leading us to the final one, where in space he is able to defeat the Cenobites once and for all, even though they're not actually supposed to be malefic beings bent on world domination and destruction. Yeah, pretty much the idea being is if you happen to come across a Cenobite, unless you happen to be Cursey Cotton, chances are you deserved it. You were looking for it. No one stumbles upon the box and opens it by accident except Kirsty. Well, well, <laughs> Poor girl. Good, people, good people don't usually stumble across it and open it by accident except for Kirsty. And that's one of the many problems with the movie is the fact that, well, first off, okay, how does he manage to get the box open? He has a robot do it. He actually went to the ridiculous trouble to even have the robot sitting in the standard kneeling pose amid a little circle of candles. As though that's somehow necessary for the ritual. Which, unless you have managed to somehow craft Bender Bending Rodriguez's great-great-grandpappy is a bit ridiculous because you have to go back to the second movie and remember that Pinhead said, hands alone do not summon us. Desire summons us. Well, I mean, I suppose he did desire the Cenobites to be in the space station that would eventually turn into the Elysium configuration, but that's a stretch. Yeah, yeah, that's a big stretch. What does a robot desire? A good McAfee scan every now and then? Uh, every now and then. <laughs> I, the occasional that, hot oil bath, yeah. little, uh, a, a little robot to follow him around and beep nonsensically. <laughs> and yes, I'm going to take shots at Star Wars every now and then. Oh, I thought you were talking about Kenny Tim from Futurama. 
Um, <laughs> that works. <laughs> he beats um, nonsensically, and he hops around. Uh, or even, you know, okay, the evil oh, robot Santa. Oh, oh okay, I thought, you, I thought you said beats as in physically harms, not beeps. Okay, no, 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 bad. not like, no, no, beep, not beat. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I was thinking of Bender's tension for occasionally kicking Tim's crutch out from under him. Um, <laughs> or it could sing the but, Doom song. We got any Invader Zim fans out there? Now the Doom song is done. <laughs> I was the turkey. I had I a sandwich in my head. Okay, okay. Let's not get off quoting Gur because we'll be here all night, not on topic. One of these days, just to test Mark's threshold of sanity, I'm going to do an entire show as Gur. That'll be interesting, but... Well, yeah, now, that's, a, that's a first problem. Um, actually, when you get to what is supposed to, I guess, be the what for us would be present day, or we'll just call it earlier, call it earlier, not future, or later, Mid-90s. not future. Um, next Sunday AD. Um, apparently, the, the one thing you kind of left out is the fact that the, the Marchand ancestor who made the big office building, apparently it had the weird idea for decor that on the inside... It was going to be revolving, interlocking pieces of the puzzle box, which I guess you could say is actually almost kind of a sort of nod to Hellraiser 3 because, depending on how you look at it, that's exactly the building we see in the last couple shots. Is that it is. Somebody, it, it is the somebody, same building. It's designed it to be the same building. They they made an effort at pseudo-continuity, folks. It just gets buried under an avalanche of horse crap. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, okay, I give them some points for that. You know, points for trying. Good job there. However, the other problem you have is Cenobites are barely corporeal beings. And they quite literally managed to kill Pinhead by nuking him from orbit. I know it's the only way to be sure, but fucking demon! <laughs> Look, I don't think a nuke would stop Toby. It's not going to stop Pinhead. If you know what the goddamn thing is, you know that setting off a big bomb in orbit is not going to do it. That's like thinking that you that's like thinking you could walk up to Chernabog himself, shoot him where his femoral, femoral artery would be with a twenty two pistol, and somehow that's going to put him down in a slow and agonizing death. You should fucking know better. Uh, you so, should. But uh, at the, it, the other thing that bugs me about this movie, now, again, at the end, there's a, now, the whole family line was cursed because the toy maker back in the day built the original box for, again, hedonistic count. 
And he also, before he died, he came up with sketches for a different configuration that would theoretically destroy the Cenobites forever, and his whole family line would then no longer be cursed, and puppies and rainbows will fly out of everyone's ass, everything's happy. And, and it just takes them until, you know, 2099 to j- create a space station that eventually becomes the Elysium configuration, which traps the Cenobites in perpetual light, which would destroy them. Ugh. You know, I just recited a base part of the plot line, and I feel confused and aggravated. This is what this movie does to me. And as Hellraiser, Hellraiser 2, and everything with the last 20 minutes of Hellraiser 3 demonstrated, it doesn't have to be this complicated. It's a relatively simple concept. It is. And, ugh. And you know what? And what's more, if you understand the Cenobites so well, you understand that for the most part, if you're an innocent, you really have nothing to worry about. In most of these movies, the worst people, the things you should fear the most, the, the, thing, the thing you should fear the most, I should say, since we've got kind of a revolving cast of centibites from now on, is not the guy with the nails sticking out of his head. Generally, no. the one wreaking the very most havoc generally tends to be the per- tends to be the person who is seeking the nail guy out. Yes, in the first two, Frank was the bad guy. Julia was the bad guy. Dr. Charnard was the bad guy. Pinhead was just there. Yes. And I mean even in the beginning of 3, you had again crazy nightclub owner who was, you know, obsessed with the hedonistic lifestyle and banality and I want to sleep with a different woman every night and I'm rich and I own a nightclub and I'm that guy that everyone wishes bad things would happen to. And he's supposed to be the problem. And then, no, Pinhead even turns him into a Cenobite with a weird metal thing sticking through his head. Speaking of which... um. Do we want to talk about Tappy Pole Cenobite? Uh, I was going to rant on, hey, we're twins, Cenobite. Yeah, I know. That's the one I'm talking about. Uh, You know, yeah, go ahead and do it a little bit. Yes, please, go for it. You know, one of two things is possible in these movies. Either one... And number one, Pinhead only had so many good ideas when it came to Cenobites to create. Or number two, somebody else created all the Cenobites that actually partnered with him. And Pinhead's Cenobites actually kind of suck. <laughs> it's entirely possible. Because he, he seems to go with these kind of matchy-matchy, ironic themes with all the Cenobites he makes. In this one case, uh, he comes across identical twin security guards uh, who I guess he's able to peer into their minds and see that they're absolutely inseparable. 
So I can tell that your greatest fear, you're both thinking, please don't separate me from my brother. Gentlemen, I can assure you, that will never happen. Yeah, yeah. And so lo and behold, what he manages to create is pretty much one big body with two arms, two legs, and two heads that are threaded like a big rope of taffy around kind of a big winding cylinder. And the way that they're able to kill people is that they're able to absorb new people into their body and kind of add kind of add their head to the bunch. Well add into the fact that they <laughs> to kill someone they also spread apart so they're connected now by this bizarre twisting thing that holds their heads together. They then move on either side of you and screw themselves back together. And yes, people, it's as stupid as it sounds. Yeah, you you were pretty much made the meat in hell damage. The other, the, the main other Cenobite I can think of that we get is we get is the, um... You get Angelique. Yeah, Angelique, thank you. The the mistress of the original patron who commissioned the toy maker to... She's uh, she a succubus who's afraid of Pinhead. Yeah. She's like actually yeah. a demon succubus, and Pinhead is just constantly annoyed with her and eventually turns her into a Cenobite because he's stronger than she is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much about the size of it. Um, she at least had a cool design to her. I mean, the way she looked was at least kind of a throwback to the original Cenobites, apart from the pink costume, but hey. And, and you know what? When I very first saw this movie, actually one of the things that popped into my mind was when I saw the way her throat was kind of opened up, I went, oh, okay, this must be how they eventually made uh, Whisperer. Yeah, that, and, I, and, I, and I kind of, you know, optimistically thought, okay, well, that's kind of a cool concept. Show us how some of the original Cenobites came to be. Okay, I can kind of be on board with that. It's a brief, interesting mo- moment in this miasma. Yeah, I mean, if you had to recreate the Cenobites, okay, I need another Butterball, I need another Chatterer. And I need another whisper, so we'll see how this goes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, about that. No such luck. Um, nope. 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 She's just a centibite with a big old gash in her throat. That's, that's all there is to it. And that's about it. Well, she also has her brain revealed. Yeah, okay, that too. That's That's slightly interesting, I guess. But... Overall, you know, if you were going to make one failed sequel after you made about two and three quarters good movies, this would have been a good time to cut your losses and just stop after you got done. Oh, no, not Hellraiser. No. For, For the purposes of a bit of explanation, Hellraiser Bloodline did receive a theatrical release. It was the last one. All the others have been straight to DVD fare. Now, I mentioned this before, and I feel the need to kind of reiterate it. Following this, uh, Dimension Films, uh, I believe owned by the Weinstein Company, 
you know, again, corporate haggling and whatnot, seemed to have a policy of, okay, I will find, you know, we get thousands of scripts submitted to us. Here's a half-decent horror one. Let's throw Hellraiser on there, add in a couple of Cenobites, Doug Bradley can make a cameo appearance, and ta-da, we got a movie. And it worked exactly once. It did, because for some reason, if you listen to our last podcast, we like Hellraiser Inferno. It's an aberration. It's you quoted the Shawshank Redemption, I believe, when you it's the piece of volcanic glass in the middle of a northern Maine hayfield. It's got no earthly reason being there, but there it is, and we are so grateful that there's another good one. Oh, but then after five. Then after five. Following Hellraiser Inferno, we get Hellraiser Hellseeker, number six. Featuring... Which is best known as the final bow of Ashley Lawrence in the series, and oh, does she make the most of it. Has very little screen time, but darn right, she's the best part about that whole movie, and it's sad because Dean Winters is there, and I like Dean Winters. Mm-hmm. Oh, and yeah. yeah. I feel like Six is another one where you have a half-decent concept, and just everything kind of gets mired down, and... Okay, for just brief, I'll, I'll be very brief here as far as the plot line goes. Dean Winters' character is married to is married to Kirsty Cotton, and they're driving down a road trying to. You, know, you, you get there's some issues with their marriage, so they're going to counseling, they're going on a vacation, whatever married couples do to try and you know work out their issues. They wind up crashing off of a bridge into into a river. He climbs out, but they never find her body. He suffers from severe head trauma and now has memory issues, which gives the filmmakers an excuse to jump randomly around through the story with no sense of cohesion. And he is try- they think he killed his wife. He's trying to find her. He's dealing with the fact that he can't remember anything, and there's a lot of weird stuff going on. Well... Come to find out at the very end, he was trying to kill his wife. He was a conniving, cheating bastard. There was no real redeeming quality of him at the time. The entire movie has been his experience in hell within the box because he had a plan to kill her. It involved someone he worked with and his boss because he was banging three other women. And he decided to forego that plan found what turns out to be Pinhead in human form, who gives him the box, tells him, give this to her, and all of your problems will be solved. He gives Kirsty the box, and she knows exactly what it is. She then opens it and makes a bargain with Pinhead. I will give you five souls in exchange for my own. Those five souls wind up being the three mistresses that Dean Winters was sleeping with, his co-worker who was supposed to kill her, and him. And the whole time he's been dead, laying on the riverside. And at the end, he Pinhead reveals the truth to him, and yes, you're actually in hell and you're dead, and then you pull back and you see 
Kirsty explaining that no, he shot himself when she actually killed him, and <laughs> along with everyone else to meet her quota. But then yeah, she winds up. She winds up walking away with the box because the police detect the guys at the crash scene found it. They said, you know, what is it? You know, is this yours? I've never seen. You know, it must be yours. It came out of the car. They hand it to her, and she walks off with the box, and we fade out. The box is still out there. Blah blah blah, et cetera, et cetera. So on and so forth. So I want. Ugh. That movie really bugged me because I found it so boring. And if you're a horror movie that's boring, there's something seriously wrong. But you know what, though? This is why, to me, Kirstie Totten is one of the all-time underrated survivor girls of these movies. And that's because you can see that in Pinhead's willingness to actually make a deal with her, got a grudging sort of respect for her. Um, they're not friends by any means, and it doesn't mean that he necessarily wants to spare her, but when it comes to her, he's got an exceptionally strict code of honor, it seems, that he abides by. It's like he thinks of her as being kind of a match for him. And based on that, he, he thinks of her as a kind of a kind of the most sporting prey he can possibly pursue. And that's fascinating. That makes that gives the two of them kind of an interesting dynamic. And it doesn't hurt that really the truth is, Ashley Lawrence, it's really a shame that the Hellraiser movies were the biggest thing she ever did because she's actually a really talented actress. Um, if you... For anyone out there who thinks that playing a survivor girl is easy... It's not. It's a very difficult thing to do properly, and if you want proof, in addition to another, a bunch of other reasons, in the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, they have, oh, who is it, Rooney Mara, who God. plays Nancy. Horribly. This is the same woman who, a year or so later, was nominated for an Oscar for playing Lisbeth Slander in the, in the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo remake, the American remake. So if you think that just anybody can do it and do it well, you're wrong. It is not an easy thing to do. Oh, no. And you're no, absolutely right. As far as Kirsty goes, probably one of the best for my money. And I mean, the fact you know, that she actually does keep surviving <laughs> gives her a leg up on some of the others. Well, I mean, I love Nancy, but she died. She She survives because she gets the... There's no way you can physically defeat Pinhead. You can't physically defeat the Cenobites. You have to outsmart them. And she does it again and again. And ultimately, in the end, as far as we know, she gets to walk away with her life. Which is more than can be said for a lot of, you know, survivor-type girls. Well, no. I mean, Laurie Strode. Laurie Strode dies. Um, uh, Nancy in Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay, okay, yes. In, in the meta, Wes Craven's new nightmare, Heather Langenkamp comes back to play Nancy. But in that series, 
Freddy eventually gets her. Um, help me out. What else am I? What else am I forgetting here? Uh, various women from. Well, there's also um, since we talked about Freddy, there's the Dream Master from four. I forget the. Uh, I want to say Ashley. But yeah, I think that's. I think that's right. I think that's the right name. Yeah, uh, Freddie um, gets her, or any of the girls from the Friday the Thirteenth series, because Jason so, always gets them. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes Jason in the also, sequel, but he gets them. Yeah. <laughs> um. But you know, not Kirsty. Kirsty got to live, and I was and I was happy about that. And I, it was even kind of interesting to give her kind of a sinister turn, and have her really turn on Dean, but the part that gets me is this is the second movie in a row where we've taken Pinhead and we kind of tried to make him this avenging angel kind of thing, where he's punishing the wicked in death. Part of that just strikes me as trying a little bit too hard to make him an anti-hero. Yeah. And also... It's the second movie in a row where you've gone with the ending of, ha ha, you're already dead. Well, to be fair, I don't feel, I feel like Craig Schaefer from Inferno didn't die. He opened the box and was sucked into it, whereas Dean was, whereas Dean Winter's character was dead the whole time. But again, it's the same ending. Right. Hey, look. Right. Anybody out there, fans of horror, we tend to hold, well, guess what, you're dead the whole time in rather low regard as far as twists go, because it's been done before, and then M. Night Shyamalan did it, and you know lots of other stuff. If that was yeah. the worst ending that we ever got out of a Hellraiser movie, I'd be happier, because it's not. It was, it was, it was almost like mixing the sensibilities of Hellraiser and a Silent Hill game. Yeah. And it... And, and while that sounds kind of interesting on paper, in reality, it doesn't play out even remotely that well. Not even close. It's, it's not all-time horribly bad, but it's just... It's a further dilution of, of the franchise with something that really that doesn't live up to anything that came before it. However, the nice thing... <laughs> the lone exception say, being when Kirsty is with Pinhead. The, yeah. like, two-minute scene where she bargains with Pinhead is the highlight of that movie, and of right. every movie from here on out. And, and I, really, uh, I really applaud, actually, the writers for taking the initiative to think of Kirsty and think okay, let's give this character some closure. Let's, let, let's kind of give her a definitive ending rather than just always wondering for the rest of the series what happened to her. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, this is one that there were good ideas. It just didn't come together properly for one reason or another. Yeah, which uh, is kind of a theme of a lot of these sequels. Which is also a theme for the next one, because now we got to talk about Hellraiser Debtor. <laughs> oh, now, Debtor. 
there are elements of Detter that I don't dislike. I we talked about this last time. I think that uh, Kari Werder does a decent job, kind of carrying the yeah you know, the Kirsty Cotton role, being the you know the female who you're following the whole time. And she does a, you know, again when she's not Ashley Lawrence doing it, but she does what I feel is it's certainly a passable job, and it's just kind of everything else around her that falls flat. I, I would agree with that, with the exception of the one <laughs> of the one awkward bathroom scene that goes on so long that it just gets silly. Oh wait, where... I've been stabbed and I'm still bleeding. <laughs> where she's just where she's it, it goes on. It's an interesting reveal, but the problem is, is the scene with her running around the bathroom goes on so long. Yeah, it becomes comical. Yeah, after a while, you go from being engrossed to just kind of giggling at how ridiculous she starts to look, especially since every so often, as I said, shirt flies open and you get to see the boobs. Um, um, But otherwise, you know, as as Kari were performances go, it, it at least wasn't Beastmaster silly. We can all be grateful for that. <laughs> I'm sorry, it wasn't Beastmaster 2, silly. Oh, good old Beastmaster 2. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, for those of you who didn't grow up when Robert and I did, you got to remember, once upon a time, HBO stood for, hey, Beastmaster's on. <laughs> oh. <laughs> This, this this was a premium cable schlock favorite, um, and and likewise, you know, and likewise, so is Kari, and she's really better here than expectation gives her a right to be. Um, the whole plot line being is that she plays a disgraced former New York Post reporter who's gotten on at a London newspaper, and she's tipped off. To a mysterious, to a mysterious Eastern cult, European cult, a mysterious Eastern European cult that has seemingly figured out the figured out the secret to bring people instantly back from the dead. Um, as it turns out, though, when she goes when she goes to uh, work up an undercover story that exposes this cult and attempts to explain and reveal their secrets. She ends up caught in the middle of a con- of a conflict between the cult leader, who believes that he's figured out the secret to eternal life, and Pinhead, who reveals that in fact the cult leader has actually figured out a gateway into his dimension and a way to seize all the power of it. And well, knowing Pinhead as we do. Just can't let that stand. So she's ultimately left with a decision: which one does she, which which evil does she want to serve? Which is the lesser of the two evils? And you know, she's actually given a fairly layered character in that every in the, in the way that every character in this series is kind of that way, in that they each clearly have their underlying issues that make them kind of compelling as a target for Pinhead. And in this case, it's the fact that we're shown that Kari has got a legacy of having suffered a lot of childhood abuse. 
I mean, specifically that she was probably raped repeatedly by her stepfather. Um, and so it makes her somewhat gripping to watch, but the trouble is there's just nothing that interesting going on around her, though. I mean, it's you've got the concept of a cult that's trying to wage war on Pinhead and her being conflicted as to helping two pretty terrible, damaging entities. But it just never really gets as interesting as you think it would. No, and this this movie also introduces the world of Hellraiser to computer-generated images. Which is, I feel, like the biggest problem with a lot of these movies. I mean, the final sequence in this one is Pin, she opens the box, Pinhead comes out, he kills everyone, which is kind of what he does. But yeah. instead of the type of visceral, practically done effects that you would get in like the first two Hellraisers, where he summons chains and hooks, and you get a couple of scenes seeing people with their skin stretched out and being hung up and then yanked apart. No. What you get here is a poorly done CGI chain with a spike attached to it, that sh- uh, one from each arm, that shoots each one through a line of four people. And it looks bad. Yeah. And it looks bad. I mean, it looks like poor CGI. Pinhead has fucking become Scorpion. And you know what? We could forgive that in the Mortal Kombat movie because, for one thing, it was Mortal Kombat. And second, it was made in the mid-90s. This was made, I believe, in the the earlier mid-2000s. Uh, I'll find out. Go ahead and keep going with your point there. Um, You're the singers the Beatles you'd seen on TV. Why not a little Spanish flea? Uh, 2005. 2005. Okay, mid-2000s. Okay, you should have advanced beyond this point. You should not have looked like a mid-90s Paul W.S. Anderson movie. That, and even then, that's just, it's one of the smaller quibbles because once again, and it's the second movie in a row now, you look at something and you think, okay, fairly interesting concept. Why wasn't it executed better? Um, you're, you're thrown into these kind of just almost weird for the sake of weird hell bust segments where you've got where you've got a bunch of naked people wearing weird costumes and bondage gear and doing all manner of things to one another and it's just kind of there just hell bus or no train that's right oh boy yeah hell train um God, I, I really have to hope that an asylum producer is not listening to this show. <laughs> well, you never know. But again, you know, what, I'm kind of with you. The big fall, the big flaw from Debtor is, you know, a lot of things are just kind of weird for the sake of weird. You never get a lot of the development or 
cohesive story that you tend to get with the better Hellraiser movies. And it's a real shame because, like I said, you have a somewhat interesting concept. You have a you have a good female lead. What wound up being a good female lead performance. There are elements here that you think, you know, this should not have sucked, and well, it just kind of does. Yeah, but you know, unfortunately, this would be the point. This would be the point in the series in which, so far, we've been able to say nice things about the movies. We've been able to pick out something that we liked about the movies. We've been able to say, well, it's not like it's terrible. It's just not as good as we feel like a Hellraiser movie should be. It just doesn't live up to the legacy of such a rich, dark, foreboding world, such an exploration of the tightest locked depths of the human mind and soul as Hellraiser was. That, but, yeah, you know, here, I look back on Hellraiser Debtor with a bit of fondness now, because I know what comes next. <laughs> you know, some of these movies, I almost feel like we put them in the wrong podcast. Some of them, I feel like I, it would have been a judgment call. We could have maybe worked them into the first one. Probably. Well, we, to be fair, we did mention Bloodline and Debtor on both, and a bit of three. We mentioned them on the other podcasts, so they kind of straddle the line. They've got some time on both episodes. Yeah, we did. Folks. But. <laughs> Hellraiser Hellworld. Hellraiser Hell. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Nine percent yeah. of what you watch is just plain confusing. The other movies are, are yes, they're visual spectacle. Yes, they're gory. Yes, they're imaginative. They're mind bending, but they make fucking sense. You watch it and you have a pretty fair grasp of what's going on. Hellraiser. Okay, that's an easy one. Frank Cotton has managed to somehow escape from the Cenobites, and now he's on the run and trying to hide from them. It's explained effectively. We get, we get good development from there as he devours mountains of human flesh in order to reconstitute himself. And then finally, business picks up, oh, by God, barbecue sauce, when finally... Pinhead catches, Pinhead and the Cenobites catch on, and they come after him, and Kersey has to make the deal with the Cenobites to spare her soul in exchange for handing over her ne'er-do-well uncle. Okay? Sounds odd, but this is horror we're talking about. Things are allowed to be a little bit odd. They have to make sense, though. There's macabre, and there's nonsensical. The two are not necessarily the same thing. As you're nope. watching this, you legitimately, throughout most of this movie, have no fucking clue what in the world is going on. Because... Uh, for, to kind of explain, if I could do a brief summary of Hellraiser Hellworld, the movie is set, theoretically, in the real world, where the success of the Hellraiser franchise has spawned a huge MMO game, referred to as Hellworld, 
Which we open real quick. You know I'll what? Go for it. Let me say this: this movie does do one thing really well. It legitimate. It legitimately makes me wonder: how did nobody ever come up with a good Hellraiser video game? I have no idea. I mean, hey, look, if we can have good games out there based on the work of H.P. Lovecraft, we can probably get a good Hellraiser game out there. So indie developers, indie game developers and whatnot, here's your challenge. Let's, make, let's get a good Hellraiser video game out there, people. There is talent out there. It can be done. Don't, don't water it down by making it a fucking MMO, but, you know, there are real possibilities in the horror gaming genre here. And especially, my God, think what you could do with today's processing power and graphics and revolutions in gameplay. Yeah. I mean, it just, we, we, live, in, we live in a world where we've gotten games, horrible games, based on Fight Club, Scarface, and Reservoir Dogs. And yet, we managed to get a really good, a really good open world, almost Grand Theft Auto style game based on the Warriors, and we've never had anyone try a Hellraiser game. It boggles the mind at times, doesn't it? <laughs> it really, really does. But, but anyway, yeah. By, by all means, go on with your explanation. I. Uh... Kind of explanation. to make this make sense. Yeah. Well, there's the MMO of Hellworld, and we meet five people. One, two, three, four, five. Who are attending the funeral of a friend who committed suicide after becoming too addicted to and engrossed in the Hellworld MMO. And one of them is deeply upset about this because he was good friends with him. The others are kind of bl- some of the others are kind of blasé. Their reactions run the gamut. Some years later, they all get invited to because the game is still growing strong, going on strong, folks. Uh, they get invited to a party at Leviathan House hosted by Lance Henriksen. They all go. They then proceed to be killed off one by one courtesy of maybe Cenobites, maybe not. It's a, it's a bit odd. Pinhead shows up, he decapitates a couple of people. Lance Henriksen kills one of them. There's a, bunch of, there's a bunch of weirdness. It jumps around a lot. There's nothing that really makes a whole lot of sense. Final girl and guy confront, find the house empty. Apparently the party broke up because, again, nothing makes sense here. No one's quite sure what's going on. They go down. They find Lance Henriksen who has been seen intermittently digging graves in the yard of his house because he owns the place. And he then reveals to them that, no, you've actually been... I actually drugged you as soon as you arrived at the party. Everything you've been seeing has been a hallucination. I've been giving you subliminal messages. Your physical body is in a coffin in the ground with an air hole. And yes, folks, that's exactly what he said, basically. (laughs) Nothing happened. Everything was just in your mind. I fed you subliminal messages in your drug state via cell phones locked in the coffin with you. And at the very end, the authorities arrive, dig up 
the last two, the again, hey, maybe they didn't, you know, wait, did they did everyone really die? Well, apparently, yes. One girl clawed her throat out because she thought she was being her throat was being cut, so in an effort to stop it in the real world, she clawed her own throat out. One of them had a severe asthma attack and choked to death on his own vomit. One of them had a good old-fashioned heart attack. <laughs> Never mind that a healthy male in his mid-twenties would probably never have to happen to him. Was, was that the same guy that hallucinated himself in orgasm? At least one, yeah. He, he's the one who got the blowjob from the chick with the mask. Folks, very definition of I'll have what he's having. Uh, Yeah, m- maybe that's what really killed him. You know, there, there was just... <laughs> There was, he had too much sex on the mind, and when he became drugged, his body couldn't keep up with what his mind was coming up with. I don't know. That makes more sense than Lance Henriksen's explanation. <laughs> but the final two are dug up. They are alive. There's some hint that there was a 911 call made by a ghost that led to them. Oh, Lance God, Henriksen. Yeah. Well, we, we, we have to back and up to and explain set all of this here. up. The reason for all of this is Lance Henriksen is actually the father of the boy who committed suicide. Even though he was an absentee father, he somehow felt the need to take revenge on these people. And at the end, while going through his dead son's possessions, he stumbles across the real box, opens it, and gets cut apart by Pinhead in another stunning display of of early 90s CGI gone horribly, horribly wrong. And then for some reason he's in the back of the car and tries to steer it off of the road while the two survivors are traveling somewhere. You fucking moron. He was a gamer. His friends were gamers, and they were playing an MMO. Why in God's name would you think they would try to talk him out of continuing to play? It's Lance Henriksen. The man doesn't have to make sense. You dumb bastard. It's not a schooner. It's a sailboat. <laughs> Your, his friends are not necessarily compassionate people who are attuned to the fact that he's addicted. They were people who were immersed. Similarly addicted. Yeah, yeah. In this, in this half-ass rendition of Evercrack. And no, of course they weren't going to recognize that he had a problem. Other meth addicts, a meth addict does not look at another meth addict and say, dude, you might have a problem. <laughs> if no addiction works that way, it... And uh, again, I can't stress this enough. The whole movie was just an extended hallucination. Yes. It's... <laughs> Nothing you actually watched actually fucking happened. It's bad enough that you have no investment in any of these characters whatsoever. In fact, there's a few of them who you want to die. Yeah, it's bad enough. Hey, Mike, you're a snarky jackass. I hope Pinhead appears and rips you limb from limb. Yeah, you know what? I don't care how the fuck much you like Nightmare on Elm Street. You want to watch Nightmare on Elm Street... Go fucking watch Nightmare on Elm Street. Hellraiser is not Nightmare on Elm Street. Pinhead is not Freddy Krueger. This makes no sense whatsoever in the universe. And, oh, by the way, 
a double chocolate dip fuck you to all the attempts to name drop things from better Hellraiser movies. Naming it Leviathan House. Oh, and the cutesy little moment where two of the guys happen to see a see a rather perky topless woman walking down the stairs and one of them says, Gratuitous tit shot? No, I'd say necessary tit shot. Hey, look, we'll try self-referential horror, because it works for Scream, it'll work for Hellraiser. Yeah, yeah, repeatedly calling them Hellseekers. Fucking A. And, and, oh, yes, and then, because we couldn't come up with any other conceivable explanation, Ghost Gamer makes a call from the house to summon police. Never mind that the two people who were st- <laughs> never mind that the two people who were still alive in the coffins had functioning cell phones in there with them. Yeah, that and that wasn't a hallucination. Oh no, that wasn't part of the fucked up mind trip. That's the start of the stuff that actually happened. You could have easily gone with, you know what? You called 911, and the old guy said nothing. We got another call a couple of days later. We showed up back here, and look, it led to you guys being buried alive. We don't need Ghost Gamer in the house. (sighs) (sighs) And then at the the end, okay, what's the explanation? Are they perhaps still drugged and still just hallucinating that Lance Hendrickson was in the car with them, and they actually steered the car off the road? Uh, has he actually, has he actually... My only explanation is the drug he gave them was still not completely out of their systems, and yet they were cleared to drive a motor vehicle. That's, that's all I got. I I mean, that's it. Mutual post-traumatic stress disorder, I, I don't know. This movie makes no sense. No, it... And let me say this. We're going to rip Hellraiser Revelations nine ways from Sunday. That's coming up in the next minute or so. I will say this about Revelations. At least the majority of it is cohesive. You can follow it. You don't want to follow it. Oh, Hellraiser Revelations is a stupid thing, but it's a stupid thing you can at least fucking understand. Whereas Hellworld, not so much. Okay, look, people, if you feel the need to be utterly visually and intellectually confused by a movie, ignore what I just said. Go watch Hellraiser Hellworld and see for yourself if you can make any degree of sense out of it. I defy you. Please. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Go right ahead. I welcome your feeble-ass attempt at it. Look, By all means, we do these, talk- and people disagree with us on occasion. Fine and dandy. The world can have different opinions. Anyone out there who has not seen Hellraiser Hellworld and thinks we're being harsh, or maybe we just put in the air quotes, folks, don't get it, as though that's any legitimate form of criticism... It's like saying, oh, you're just a hater, and haters going to hate. No, I'm pointing out a legitimate flaw in your logic and personality. That doesn't make me a hater. And you can't dismiss legitimate criticism under that guise. No. 
no, absolutely not. And, and you know what? Anyone else, watch it you know, and see if we're wrong. To, to make a little bit of an appeal to authority here, and as we gradually start to crescendo up to the part that I've been waiting for since I started this series, nay, since I started this show, let me tell you something. If you think that we're just two guys who are being unduly harsh, do yourself a favor. Go to 411 Mania. Look up the archive of Joseph Lee's outstanding horror column of Bloody Good Time. Read his excellent retrospective on the entire franchise. You will see that we're mirroring a vast majority of what he has to say about it. And not just because we tailored it that way. Oh, no. It's just because it's so patently obvious about so many of these movies. But Hellraiser 8, as I said, that was where it started to go bad. It was bad. It was jarringly bad. Folks, we have come to a movie. A movie that has been my nemesis since I saw it about two years ago. Not just because of the movie itself. Oh, no. But because of the story that ev- of everything that went on behind the scenes of making it. Folks, okay. Legal boilerplate. One moment. What we're about to engage in is pure speculation based on Internet rumor, not in any way construed to be factual or a legitimate attempt at criticizing various publications and, ma- and multi-million dollar corporations, which may or may not decide to sue us for slander. Oh, you're partially right, except for the <laughs> fact that I'm going to start with a tale of two reactions. Because uh, let me, see, if I could set up just very briefly before you go into this, the Hell World Revelations was released in 2011, six years after Hell World. Hell World was also released in 2005. Now, around this time, around 2011, there had been talks about getting another movie together. Clive Barker was interested in saving his franchise following the debacle of Hell World. Well, while they were getting the script together, and all of that fun stuff, someone, some genius in the legal department at Dimension Studios looked up the status of the rights for the Hellraiser franchise. Turns out that Dimension, if they didn't make a movie every so often, the rights would revert back to other people. In this case, I believe specifically Clive Barker. So now we're we're in closing 2011... This is, well, I should also explain, this is a standard thing that happens with licensed properties. And you have to remember, this was licensed from originally from a Clive Barker story, The Hellbound Heart. This is the same reason why Fox can no longer make Daredevil, why Lionsgate can no longer make The Punisher, because they let the rights expire after they made their last movies, and they reverted back to the original copyright owners, which in this case would be Marvel and Disney. And, yeah, so someone went through their records and realized, oh, crap, if we don't make and produce and release a movie before 2012, the rights revert back. 
I can't stress enough how slipshod that is just from a business standpoint. Off the air when Sean and I were preparing for this, this is the rough equivalent of having Bobby Roode win the world heavyweight championship in TNA, and then some intern comes up and goes, oh, by the way, his contract expires in a month, and we haven't renewed it. Or for those of you who don't watch TNA or who watched WWE back in the Attitude Era, uh, I pointed out that this would also be like Jim Ross, uh, black resist all hat in hand, going to Vince McMahon and saying, uh, about Jeff Jarrett's contract, uh, yeah, um, if he doesn't have one. And uh, this is how much money he says he wants to go out there on pay-per-view and have a schedule, have a schedule match. By God. To be fair, he was having a match against China, and I might want a little extra incentive for that, too. Right. But, but you know what? It's a well but point being. And well, because the, well, the idea kind of being is that it's well-meaning in that the rights revert back so that that way somebody can't buy up a possibly lucrative licensed property and just hold on to it so that nobody else can make money off of it. The idea has to be that you do right by the original creators of the IP and you actually have a genuine intent to kind of build on the brand by adapting it. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so that way you're also not screwing over the original creator either. Yeah. And it, it's a fair practice. It's absolutely a legitimate one. But the Weinstein Company, Dimension Films, and everyone else kind of went, you know, oh, crap. We're working on a movie, but if we don't finish it, no one has to do it. The rights revert back, and we don't get any money. Oh, crap. Let's make a quick... Let's, uh, hang on. Clive Barker, you're working on a script. You're fired. Get out. We need something fast, and you'll want to do justice to characters, write a cohesive script, and actually put production values into this thing. You're fired. Get out. Director, no, you're fired. Get out. New director. This guy made a music video once. He'll work. He'll work for cheap, and he'll do it in ten days. And with the shooting says, I'm not joking about that shooting schedule, by the way. The thing was shot in like a week. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we make jokes about that from time to time. That's legitimate. That whole thing was shot in a week, give or take. And let me say this. Here's, the biggest, here's one of the biggest problems I have with this movie. Let's start with the obvious, the biggest one. If you look at just the, 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 the cover, you know, the poster, the, you know, if you're scrolling through Netflix and you happen to see the picture on the, of the cover on the box, that is not Doug Bradley as Pinhead. This is, Doug Bradley came back for Hellworld. He looked at the script for Hellworld and said, you know what, okay, I'll be Pinhead, I'll make this movie. He looked at the script for Revelations and went, uh, he had a very nice, very polite re- re- <laughs> thing that he posted that said no. I have to imagine... His initial response was something like Clive Barker's. And, Sean, I know you have the quotes in front of you, so please, start with Doug Bradley and then go to Clive Barker. Yeah, by all means, Doug Bradley, the last voice of the original franchise. Keep in mind, by this point, New World Pictures 
had gone under. It had been absorbed. It was no more. It was an ex-parent. Had not been involved in a single movie in this franchise since the first one. Uh, even composer Christopher Young, for many moons now, had not scored a Hellraiser movie. By the time Hellworld came out, it was down to just Doug Bradley. It was the equivalent to Eugene Levy starring in a bunch of movies that they insisted on continually calling American Pie. Doug Bradley, amid all the speculation about whether or not he would be returning as Pinhead, was quoted directly as saying, <clears throat> and I quote, I know that many of you will have caught up with the sudden burst of internet chatter about a new Hellraiser film going into production and will be keen to know whether I've been approached to play Pinhead again. So here's the deal. I have been approached just in this last week, whereabouts 16 August, regarding a proposed new Hellraiser film. This is not the remake, which has been endlessly discussed for the last three years, with the working title Hellraiser Revelations, it will be the ninth film in the series. I would stress that I have had no contact from or negotiations with anyone from Dimension Films. Rather, these contacts have been by way of private discussion with individuals involved with this project. Being following these discussions and after reading the script and giving it due consideration, I have decided not to participate. The ink is barely dry on the script and is scheduled to be in front of the cameras in two weeks' time and in the can by the middle of next month. That would be September 2010. The minuscule shooting schedule is more than matched by the budget. Whether or not this means that somebody else will be stepping up to play Pinhead, I have no idea. I guess we can watch this space together. One way or another, this does not seem to me to represent a serious attempt to revise the Hellraiser franchise. However, I wish everyone who will be directly involved in the making of this film good luck with it. God bless you for being a gentleman and a professional, Mr. Doug Bradley. Huh. Yeah. Clyde Barker's response. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then the movie got made. <laughs> Yeah. To quote Clive Barker's Twitter, the man without whom there is no Hellraiser, there is no Pinhead, there is no previous four weeks of prep for Long Road to Ruin, in a reaction to the fact that the ad copy for the film proclaimed from the mind. He proclaimed, audaciously proclaimed, that this thing came from the mind of Clive Barker. He said, and I quote, I want to put on record that the flick out there using the word Hellraiser is no fucking child of mine. I have nothing to do with the fucking thing. If they claim it's from the mind of Clive Barker, it's a lie. It's not even from my butthole. Close quote. It's not even from my butthole. 
of all the quotes that could be cherry-picked to go on box art, to go on ad copy. That, right there, that it did not even come from this master of horrors, blessed anus, is the one this movie deserves. Uh, yes. Now, I'm going to very briefly discuss the plot, such as it were. The, the movie opens, and look, we hear horror fans, Sean and I in particular, have kind of a low tolerance for prequels, as discussed before. Something else we have a very low tolerance for, because it's so frequently done poorly, is found footage. Roughly a third of this film is found footage. I might have, it might be closer to a fourth. Somewhere in that neighborhood, there is a legitimate percentage of this film that is found footage. And God help anyone who thought found footage should be in a Hellraiser movie. But I guess the movie opens. People who clearly can't act is just shoot it in found footage and just try to tell people it's found footage. They're not supposed to seem like they're acting. They're supposed to seem like they're real people. Womp womp! Yeah. Did I put you so, $300,000 budget? 300000 But the movie opens with two friends, uh, lifelong friends, leaving their wealthy families in, I think it's Los Angeles, somewhere in Southern California. Yeah, yeah. Forgive me if I get the exact city wrong. I don't care that much. No, no, because they referenced it right in the very first few seconds. First few seconds, you want to wave goodbye to Los Angeles before we uh, say goodbye together? Yeah, said one, said one of our two initial protagonists who looks like the horrible experiment of exposing one of Justin Bieber's two scrotal hairs, the massive amounts of gamma radiation, and watching it mutate arms and legs. Yep. And they, one of them, is kind of a nihilist and being... Not much, I assume not much out of high school he hasn't yet learned that, huh, nihilism is an interesting philosophy, but in practice it's not a good thing unless you're kind of a sociopath. So they go down to Mexico and are never heard from again prior to the start of the movie. And, oh, the oh, other oh, oh, thing. Oh, 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 wait, Robert, Robert, Robert. No, it's not just Mexico. As he says in his repeated horrible Eddie Guerrero impression voice, they're going to a Tijuana. No, yeah, because he repeatedly says that amidst other various just ramblings and mumblings and exclamations about donkey shows. Orale! I'm your puppy! Oh, poor Eddie Guerrero. God bless your memory, man. But <laughs> now whenever someone does a bad impression, I hear Eddie Guerrero doing it. And... Ugh. But yes, they're going to Tijuana to engage in debauchery slash look for themselves slash discover there is no purpose to life, blah, blah, blah. Slash impact the hooker's head into a toilet. Because, hey, why not? And it, the found footage that we see throughout the rest of the movie is from their camera. So it's not just found footage, it's flashback found footage, folks. 
Oh, yeah, but, yeah. Anytime we're watching found footage, we're watching it as one of the two little shit things, mother, or, I forget, I think it's, um, I kept getting a mix-up, I think it's uh, Steven's mother. I don't remember their names. There are things oh, about this movie I, I have deliberately forgotten or blocked out. Yeah, but one of oh, their mothers and one of the sisters are the two people who tend to watch or who watch the film and we get flashbacks through. Yeah. And anyway, to get to, you know, to catch up to what's actually going on, the families of these two boys get together every year. They're still friends. They hope they're out there. They've been gone for a while. They're getting together for the annual family dinner that they have. And in the middle of family dinner, which is tense because, oh, wait, you corrupt, your son corrupted my son. No, your son corrupted my son, and we actually hate each other because it's white suburbia, and apparently that's a fallback on, for every crappy screenwriter there is under the sun. One of the sons, catatonic, stumbles up to the house, help me, and all hell breaks loose. They bring him into the house. They, tr- they try to call for help, but the phone lines are cut, the cars won't start, the gate won't open, various horror tropes for isolation. Kid wakes up a bit later, mumbling that he escaped from the Cenobites. Okay, now also, interspersed through all of this are visions of, not Doug Bradley, Pinhead, nailing, and other Cenobites, nailing ch- squares of flesh onto someone else's head who is becoming a Cenobite. If you don't quite get what I mean when I say he looks like Pinhead in the sense that Pinhead has the, ge- has the very geometric pi- uh, nails driven into his head, the new one has squares of skin set, but set and then nailed into his skin in a geometric form. So he looks similar to Pinhead even though he's shorter and, has, and doesn't have a crappy voice and doesn't have a voice actor lip-syncing. But interspersed throughout all of this is oddly timed visions of this poor person being turned into a Cenobite. And Pinhead walking around, caressing chains, looking mildly aroused at the whole process, which is not at all in character with Pinhead, but that's just one of the problems with this movie, folks. Now... Through a long series of bizarre conversations, convoluted events and found footage flashbacks, we come to realize that the son who has appeared, who was the non-nihilistic son, the good son, is actually the bad one. I'm going to look up their names here just so that I don't keep calling them the wrong thing. I'll help you out with that. The good one, supposedly, as I understand it, is uh, Stephen Craven and... The bad one is named Nico Bradley. Yeah. Insert various <laughs> jokes here. But it turns out that it is not actually Stephen who has returned, and in, which is a bit thankful because he made out with his sister in a bit of awkward cinematography there. But it's not actually Stephen. It is, in fact, Nico who is wearing Steven's skin as a suit, similar to what Frank did with his brother, and Julia did. She wound up wearing her own skin, but again. Because during his quest for nihilism and whatever, Nico discovered the box. 
He opened it. Steven sensibly ran away when he saw Pinhead, because that's what you should do. Nico decides, no, I want to go, I want to experience, and as has become customary, it's way more than he anticipated. He pusses out, tries to get Steven to help him. Steven tries, Nico kills him and puts on his skin. Before he dies, Steven opens the box, and he is actually the person who's become the new Cenobite throughout this movie. But now we have Nico wearing Steven's skin, holding everyone hostage. He shoots his father in the stomach with a shotgun. He's desperate to escape the Cenobites because, hey, if you escape them, they find you, and it's worse. This leads to the conclusion where the sister, Emma, has discovered the box is still within, the, within his possessions. She opens it. The Cenobites appear, including new Steven Cenobite, who looks very much like Pinhead. They try, they're going to take Nico to hell and visit nine kinds of torments on him. The father, who's been shot in the stomach, decides to kill him because, at this point, Nico has killed a couple of other people. So he kills him with the exclamation, no one's going to kill that little bastard but me. Pinhead looks with disdain on this poor human being and says, you know, if you thought about it, what we would have done to him is so exponentially, infinitely worse than anything you could possibly have done. But your short-sighted quest for vengeance has robbed us of that. We're taking your wife now to make up for it. And when you're in hell, too, remember that her suffering is on your head. That poor bastard's been shot in the stomach with a shotgun. He dies a few moments later, leaving Emma alone in a house full of corpses. And prior to leaving, Pinhead turns and looks at Emma and says, You know, I can sense in you a lot of what's in Nico, so if at any point in your future the world that you know becomes dissatisfying, open the box, I'll have a place for you. And the movie fades to black as following all of this, she reaches for the box. Okay. And now I'm guessing you want my reaction to everything you just said. I just want to purge it from my memory again, because, God, I'm remembering the scenes and the acting and just everything that's wrong with it. So please, go for it. Your reaction. Everything you just mentioned is about half, maybe, of what is wrong with this movie and what pisses me off so fucking badly as somebody who loves the original. First off, fucking Pinhead. I don't want to call that thing Pinhead. It looks not. like it, 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 it looks like a doughy fucking cosplayer in his homespun Pinhead costume that happened to go that happened to go romping around a con someplace, and there happened to be a dimension rep there, and somebody signed up Stephen Smith Collins to play Pinhead. Oh, but here's the problem. Pinhead is not played by just one person here. Oh, no. Stephen Smith Collins does not supply the voice of Pinhead. No, that is supplied by veteran legendary voice actor Fred Tatashori, who has been in so many anime, so many, so many video games, uh, so many animated, animated features. Um, if I could go over the short list of them, just so you have an idea just how accomplished this guy is, just to rattle off a few of my favorites. 
Um, in Afro Samurai, he was the voice of Juzo, patron number five, and Shuzo. Uh, Naruto, Naruto Shippuden. Uh, Non-anime, he's been in Adventure Time, American Dad, Aqua Teen Hunger Force, Avatar The Last Airbender, The Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Uh, the one I actually remember him from is he played uh, both Solomon Grundy and Bane in Batman Arkham City, one of my all-time favorite video games. He supplies the voice of Pinhead. You had to get two fucking people to do in this movie, to do in this one horrible $300,000 movie, what Doug Bradley did by himself in eight fucking movies for better or worse prior to that. And it still didn't work. That's just a testament to just what Doug Bradley brought to the role by himself. Now, that brings me to everything else that's wrong with this. In every other movie in this series, we're compelled by the fact that every one of the main characters, every one of the focal points, has got some kind of key critical flaw. And you know what? Since this is trying so desperately fucking hard to parallel what Clive Barker did perfectly the first time, let's just compare it to the first one. Frank Cotton gets a lot over just based on his sheer presence, just based on the way he carried himself, based on his look, based on the fact that everything about him conveys that this was a nasty man to begin with, that this was not a nice guy, this was not a good guy, this was somebody who was consumed by lust, avarice, greed, all the worst things about humanity, just waiting for somebody to plug an amplifier into it. And that's exactly what happened. That's what makes both him and Julia in particular so so damn compelling. It's simply the fact that there are people who are just made so restless and bored by everything around them that it's not that they necessarily look to harm anybody in particular. They're just so gluttonous and and always in pursuit of a greater pleasure, and nothing is ever necessarily enough for them. They're so hedonistic. That's a good word, hedonistic. And ultimately, when they get over in over their heads, that's what makes them evil. That's what makes them desperate. There's nothing necessarily so deeply intriguing about these two little skid marks on life's undies. No, these are just a couple of scrawny, bony little fucks who it turns out are fleeing from their parents because they're, a couple of their respective parents were cheating with each other. No, seriously, that's the only explanation we get. That's why they left. And ultimately, we're treated to finding out that the worst thing about these people is the fact that in one of the bar rooms, Nico happens to at one point pick up a hooker in the most comically, sadly awkward way possible, takes her into a bathroom to drill her. I guess at one point both he and Steven pass out in the bathroom, and when we come to, well, one thing led to another, 
And apparently Nico decided to dribble the hooker's head off of the toilet like a damn basketball. That just keeps spiraling downward. And ultimately, oh, by the way, that leads exactly nowhere because later they're just sitting around sulking in a bar room when they happen to come across a vagrant who gives them the puzzle box. And they have the nerve in this movie to even work in one of the classic lines from the first movie, one of the very first lines from the first movie, and that is when Nico is asking about the price of the puzzle box, the vagrant, take it, it's yours. It always was. No, you have not earned the right to cop that line. Oh, but that brings me to the suburbanites. Biggest bunch of vapid, no fucks given about them stock characters you have ever seen. Just a bunch of pretty people with pretty people problems. That's all they are. We're not given any reason whatsoever to care about them. Nothing about Emma's performance engenders even remotely the same investment as we got in Ashley Lawrence playing Kirsty Cotton. It's not even remotely close. And that's the problem. We're given no reason to give a fuck about anybody in this damn movie. And as we progress further and further along, yes, we're made to do the whole mind fuck, mind fuck thing. Okay, everything's just, huh, it's so weak. It's so weird, and it's so off-kilter, and it's so dark. Yeah, but you know what? In Hellraiser, things were dark with a purpose. We weren't just thrown random incest. Uh, we weren't just thrown Kirstie at some point stroking the puzzle box and looking like she's about to bring herself off. And then we get that ham-fisted exposition dump at the very end of it, with, with, and I'll just call him Stiko to avoid confusion because he has Nico and Steven Skin. In other words, he no, in other words, he no longer looks like nature's little oopsie anymore, like he's about to break out into a rendition of Baby at any second. Holding everybody at gunpoint, and essentially delivers a big bitching. It's the kind of shit Lincoln Park lyrics are made of. Bad Lincoln Park lyrics. Not even like hybrid theory Lincoln Park lyrics. Like Meteora lyrics. Just so fucking stop to the point that you don't really care. You almost wish they'd fucking kill him sooner. What do you mean almost? I did wish they'd killed him sooner. God damn it. Oh, yeah. And then at the end, you know, it all just evolved into this great big old clusterfuck that you described pretty much perfectly. Except one thing I will point out. I will say, you know what? I got to admit the Pinhead Mini-Me makeup is actually pretty fucking good. I think that could have been set aside for the actual Hellraiser remake, except, eh, nope, never happened, probably never will happen, because there's been no discussion of it having ever since this piece of dog shit came out, and probably never will until Dimension manages to lose the rights. Look, where the hell 
does anybody who made this movie get off thinking that they can take this concept that so many people love, just shut off. He didn't leave. He was fired. You fire Clive Barker from a Hellraiser movie to go and make this. To go and make this petty, transparent cash grab just to turn the hourglass over and hold on to the right as opposed to actually getting off your ass sooner and making a good movie. It's a fucking goddamn disgrace. And quite frankly, I can't blame Clive for wanting nothing to do with it. Nothing whatsoever. Because it is rare. It is exceptionally rare, except in comic books, in my opinion, to have a completely different team take over another intellectual property, something that was originated by somebody else, and actually top the original concept. Trust me, take a look around you. How many times do you see people go, going around saying, Kingdom Come, what's so funny? What's so funny about truth, justice, and the American way? Ha! Fuck all that. Give me Superman Returns any day. How many times do you hear that? Yeah, that's right. You never fucking do. And even then, okay, yeah, in comics, that's, that's an example. The people who made those stories, like when Frank Miller did All-Star Superman, I think it was Alan Moore that did Kingdom Come. I could have that, I could have that wrong, and feel free to call me out on it if you want to. Yeah, I think you're right. People, yeah, they were people who took the original mythos and expanded on it. Do you want to look at Batman? Okay, my favorite Batman books of all time... Batman Year One, The Long Halloween, Dark Victory, and Hush. Respectively, Frank Miller, and then Jeff Loeb, Tim Sale, and Jim Lee expanded successfully on Bob Kane's creation. They took it to new places. They dug deeper, and they came up with something absolutely beautiful. They came up with absolute works of literature, works of art, in stark, stark contrast, even looking past Hellraiser, okay, there's a reason why so many people will flat out say uh, the two best Nightmare on Elm Street movies were the original and Wes Craven's New Nightmare. You know why? Because those were the only ones that the fucking original director and writer wrote and directed. Everything else was somebody else thinking they could do better. In this case, there wasn't even an attempt to do better. This was just taking something that is a horror legacy and just slapping something together so that nobody else can make a Hellraiser movie. Quite frankly, fuck every last solitary fucking drizzling shit ounce of this movie. And quite frankly, fuck you, Dimension. I don't understand you. The Weinsteins are responsible for helping people like Robert Rodriguez and Kevin Smith and Wes, and even Wes Craven get some of my all-time favorite movies made. And then you go and do this. Where is your goddamn logic that this was a good idea and there was going to be no backlash on it? The only thing that stuns me about this, more than actually having watched it, having watched it twice, I should say, you're welcome very fucking much, people, is the fact that after looking at Netflix reviews, there were people who actually rated this three stars. Oh, oh yeah. Some people actually essentially implied that this was an average movie. 
God. Yeah. Damn every ounce of this. You know what? At this point, I feel fine about eventually taking on Highlander 2. I feel like I can handle it. You'll feel that way until you have to watch it, but... Uh, This is one of those things, folks. Hellraiser Revelations is one of those events, things, instances, uh, trials that you go through in life that you can forever look back on and say, well, at least it's not that bad. There are... Quite honestly, I feel just fine saying this is easily, and I don't mean bad in a the room way or anything like that. I mean bad as in I really hoped it was going. Oh, wait, hang on. Actually, uh, brief uh, brief aside, we got a correction. Uh, Kingdom Come was by Mark Wade and Alex Ross. Okay. So uh, thank thank you, Tim Sheridan, for pointing that for pointing that out. Cheers to you for that. Um, oh, actually, we're into the overrun now. I have to congratulate him we on are Facebook. Now. Yeah, um, but no, you know what? There's bad movies, as in they're just ineptly made, like like The Room, like Plan Nine from Outer Space, and then their filmography, and then there are movies like this that bring out the biggest rule of Long Road to Ruin, and that is nobody complains like a fan. I'm not complaining about how bad all the Hellraiser movies are. I get so angry about this because I love this franchise, because I'm a horror fan, because I consider it an example when the movies are good of what horror can be at its very, very best. And then there's this, and a hell world. And I'm just left exasperated, because I was so excited at one point when I heard that Clyde was on board to help revive his own franchise. That is so rare. You never get that. You never get a situation like that, or like Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell wanting to be on board to help them make a new Evil Dead. Never happens. You had the hands that built the original there as a last vestige of the rest of the franchise. I dare say you might have even gotten Doug Bradley back. If you treated him right, you might have actually gotten Pinhead. Yeah, it, it struck me that, you know, listening to what he said, that he didn't like the script and he didn't think it was true to Hellraiser. And if you had Clive Barker doing the script, one would assume it was better and closer to what it should be. And consequently, Doug Bradley would have no problem returning. Probably not. No. I mean, it's still, I mean, God, thank God they didn't get him on board for this. I would have just felt sorry for him. And again, you had to get two people to play Pinhead. How damn inept 
it's not even like with Jackie Earl Haley in the Nightmare on Elm Street remake where I can say, okay, good job playing the character. You just had a bad script. Can't fault you for that. No. Pinhead sucks in this. And, oh, yeah, and about that ending, a whopping about 60 seconds afterwards, yeah, Emma's already looking like she wants to open the puzzle box up again. I imagine Pinhead on the other side would have probably said a double take and said, Already? By our count, we had about three more years before we got you. Okay. Maybe I mean, if, you, if you were ready, I wouldn't have left in the first place. I would have just sunk my hooks into you, literally, and drug you back with us. Yeah. Uh. I think that's all we got. I think that's I, And everybody, I hope that lived up to your expectations for what we built up for my absolute raging at this piece of shit. Hey, look, I'm with you. you know, you're right. Nobody complains like a fan. And that's not necessarily... And it should be noted. We're drawing a distinction between fanboyism where nothing could possibly live up to it and people who just enjoy... And, you know, fan, I mean, before we got into Hellworld, we just said, you know, we probably could have fed at least two of these movies into the good podcast, into the good section... And been just fine with it. We're not fanboy raging here because, oh, this was... These are things we are fans of. We acknowledge that it can be done well, and in some cases done differently. And you just royally pissed all over everything. And, ugh. Yeah, that... Those last two movies... Aggravate, they represent the absolute worst of what goes on into movie making. And in finished product, too, not just what goes into it, but what comes out of it. You get nothing but crap for the sake of, oh, wait, we need some cash. And you're pissing on the legacy of something that is good, that when it's done right is exceptional. There's a reason. There's, let's put it this way. There's a reason you could make four or five bad movies and people were still interested because the first ones were that good and at this point you have just pissed on the legacy and you have pissed off everyone who might have been interested in more of them and it ugh, it bugs me also because because of this crap we won't get you know, a, maybe a reimagining maybe a new entry into the series we won't get something that might bring us back to enjoying it Maybe for the next four years, because I think that's when their rights would expire again. Oh, probably something like that. It's that, that that's it. That that's the nail in the franchise. It's it, it's fucking done. At least I hope it is. Unless it is going to actually be done properly, and at this point, I wouldn't even go see it until I heard from someone else that it was done properly. You have everyone involved with these with the last couple of movies. You have burned me, and I'm just speaking me, for the last time. I will no longer watch something new just because Hellraiser is attached to it. And there was a time that I did. We're done being burned. And now you've just, uh You killed a great franchise. And it takes a lot to actually kill a franchise to the point where... They don't make even direct-to-DVD releases. Oh, God. Yeah, this is... 
this is it. Some, something like 10, 20 years down the road, somebody might get nostalgic and try it. And, you know, maybe we'll get lucky and it will actually be okay. Um, once, God only knows if, if somebody's actually going to listen to this podcast and actually say, oh, okay, you know what, they're absolutely right. You know, somewhere somebody's going to read the IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic and and all those other reviews, and just hopefully acknowledge, wow, this it's all spot on. Yes, this is exactly where it went off the rails. Okay, now we know what to do. I'm a believer that good remakes and reimaginings and and localizations they can happen. They're rare, but they can happen. Look, I'm one of the few people out there who actually liked the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. Hey, I enjoyed the hell out of the Evil Dead, out of the new Evil Dead. Oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Uh, the Ring is one of my favorite movies. Um, it's possible. It can be done. And God knows, I believe that if it had had a better script than somebody who actually really understood what the franchise was supposed to be all about, there could have been a good Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Because God knows Jackie Earl Haley was the right choice to take up for Robert England. And but you know, the most we live in the I'm with you on the Nightmare on Elm Street because there were a couple of scenes in there that were kind of awesome that made me think, man, where was everything that went into this for the rest of the movie? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but now we live in the day and age where somebody can't even get a. Get a fucking Friday the 13th remake right. Come on, Jason, Olympic caliber archer. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, we, we might as well just made him Green Arrow. And hey, he took someone hostage. Jason has a long history of taking people alive, right? Oh, of course he does. Yeah, and we finally explained the Jason Voorhees teleportation device by demonstrating that he has spent years building a complex network of underground tunnels. So evidently, he's got quite the civil engineering acumen. And yeah, and these tunnels don't collapse when someone walks over them, despite being what I can only assume are inches underneath the surface. Uh, Jason, yeah. Voorhees, Jason Voorhees is the forerunner of the mole people. They're coming, folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does explain the mongoloid features a little bit. Oh, uh, yeah. All right. That was uh, that was more cathartic than I expected it to be, actually, listening to you and getting some of it off of my chest as well. So I feel better. I feel a bit better now after that, and I'll just, you know, need to get those movies out of my mind again, but I can do that. I've done it before. And... That is going to wrap up the Hellraiser edition of The Long Road to Ruin. Uh, now, remind me again, Sean, what is the next series that you guys are doing because Mark's coming back for the month of November? Uh, yes, The Mandated Reporter will be back next month. And actually, Mark and I had gone back and forth a couple times when we wanted to, so bear with me just a second while I scroll down to the schedule. Because I don't remember right... Okay, here we go. Uh, 
to round out the rest of 2013, November 5th, Mark and I are reviewing the Toy Story trilogy. We're going in a light direction after this. And it's going to be one of the rare times when we're not going to have a bad thing to say about these movies. No way, no how. Uh, After that, November 19th, it's the start of something that Robert and I have had on our agenda. Or not Robert and I. Mark and I have had on our agenda for a while. We're going to be talking Die Hard in a two-part series. Uh, we're going to be talking Best about movie what, ever. <laughs> we're going to be talking about what we consider the three best Die Hard movies on November nineteenth. Die Hard one, two, and three. And then a day after my birthday on December third, we're going to celebrate me blowing out thirty-one candles on top of a medium rare T-bone steak with talking about the last two Die Hard movies and how it was all going so well before that. And then finally, before Mark and I go away for about four weeks to recharge our batteries, December 17th, we're going to be talking about Disney's three three Tim Allen vehicles, the Santa Claus. Mm. I just so enjoy the first Santa Claus movie. Right. And then after that, come on back in January because we put it off about a dozen times for various reasons, but I'm really looking forward to this. We're going to be starting with Alien, Predator, and then Alien versus Predator. I'm not just looking forward to this because of the movies, but because we're going to be joined by a mentor of mine, a somebody that I knew when I was a student at Northwest Missouri State, and he, well, not was, still is a still is an instructor there, Um, and just an overall great friend. Uh, He's an author, paranormal columnist, paranormal investigator, former reporter, former mayor of Oreck, Missouri, former bartender. Jason Offit is going to join us for all three retrospectives. So it's going to be six weeks of a three-man booth with him, myself, and Mark Rodlich. I very much look forward to those, especially since I'm such a huge fan of, well, I like the Alien and the Predator franchises. The AVP franchise, not so much. Well, we, we had to tack that on to go talk about how this looks so good on paper. You know, my my brother and I have seen the AVP movies together, both of them, and we came to the same conclusion kind of independently. Those movies are so awesome when there are no humans on screen trying to speak poor dialogue. Yes. Just give me the uh-huh. aliens and the predators fighting, and I'm happy. Don't need anything else. The, uh, before we get to the pluggery, uh, a couple quick actual Long Road to Ruin-related announcements. Uh, regarding us eventually going to video, we have a new development in that. Uh, Manic Expression has gotten their situation worked out. And as opposed to going to YouTube, which has once more become copyright claim handy and is going straight scorched earth on everybody from small timers like Manic Expression to word on the grapevine is even bigger fish like the spoony one. Um, For Blit TV, which is pretty much purging all clients except for their cream of the crop shows, uh, they have signed a contract with Springboard for a monetized channel. 
So as soon as we get a few things worked out, that is going to be officially, for really realies this time, the start of Long Road to Ruin entering the video era. Which brings me to my second announcement. Um, hopefully he's going to pick up this and listen to the overrun later, because I think he's listening live tonight, or was listening live. Um, we have in all likelihood found a title card artist. And I'm very... Uh, he contacted me yesterday via Facebook. We had a very nice conversation. Uh, mentioned he's been a longtime fan of the show. And his name is Benjamin J. Cologne. Um, and actually, one of the things that impresses me most about him is the fact that one of his current credits, well, in addition to having looked at a lot of his art and him being extremely, extremely talented, is the fact that most recently one of his projects is being the artist on an independent comic book called Revolution of the Mask. And one of his collaborators is longtime writer of the series, I believe creator or co-creator of it. Uh, apologies if I get that wrong. And also host of that guy with the glasses atop the fourth wall, uh, Linkara, Louis Loveout. So... We're happy to soon have him on board, especially since we've got some more horror coming up in the month of April. And I feel he's going to be able to have some fun with that. Yeah, that... There's a lot of fun stuff coming up for fans of this series and everything on the Rattelich and Broadcasting Network. So, good to hear that we've... uh, That you guys, well, since I guessed every now and then, good to hear that you guys have found that, that that's been worked out, and... Look forward to finding you over there, and hopefully you and Mark get uh, you know enough cash to maybe order a extra large soda at the drive-through every now and then. Word. All right. Uh, okay, with the business out of the way, any plugs you want to get out, you want to do now? Uh, just one last plug, and that is everybody. By all means, keep checking out my column over the 411 Mania Music Zone. Give life back to music. Uh, we are now into series numero tres. Um, a sheesh kind of sort of shit canned my plan Dixie Chicks retrospective. So instead, I decided that instead of doing four weeks of talking about the Dixie Chicks, I'm going to do six weeks of talking about Johnny Cash. And so far, it seems to have been pretty well received. Um, we did the first American Recordings album last week, and... This coming Sunday night slash Monday morning, depending on when you're reading it, we get to American 2. So tune in for a very in-depth, personal look at six of my all-time favorite country releases. And otherwise, uh, oh, yeah, I'm going to be on this other podcast Friday night, for which I'm going to be interrupting my playing of Batman Arkham Origins. Sorry about that. Yeah, Bill, apologies needed. I'm happy to do it. All right, yeah. Uh, for my little plugs here, as Sean just alluded to this, Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Everyone Loves a Bad Guy is back. And this week, we're going to take a... Okay, since Freddy Krueger rightfully gets his own podcast, and since I want to do it November 1st, the day after Halloween happens to be Friday, so that works out. So Freddy gets his own one then. That left this week kind of in an odd spot. So Sean and I are going to just be talking about some of our favorite Halloween movies in general, why we like them, the 
villains associated with them, and we might also hit some of the bad ones, some of the ones that we just hate. So just kind of a hodgepodge show this week. We'll have good and bad. There might be a call-in section, uh, depending on how everything goes. So look forward to that. If you're a fan of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in the Rattlech and Broadcasting Network coming up. Uh, you can find, of course, the Casual Heroes, the Three Beards, uh, From the Right Radio, The Right Hook is on here. And, of course, Long Road to Ruin. This Sunday, I will be guest hosting the 411 Ground and Pound MMA radio show. Jeff Harris and Pat Mullen should be there. Good times will be had by all because it's a fun format. And we'll have a fight card to review. So we get to talk about Leota Machida dropping to middleweight for everyone who wants to see what he does against Mark Munoz this week. My weekly column on 411 Mania is in the MMA zone. It goes live every Friday, locked in the guillotine. This week I will be giving an in-depth review of UFC 166. Junior Dos Santos knocks himself out on the canvas. And I will be previewing UFC Fight Night 30, Leoto Machida versus versus Mark Munoz because Michael Bisbing had a detached retina to go with his sandy vagina. (laughs) And uh, that does it for my plugs. So, Sean, I'm very glad that you had me on for this series. I would have insisted on being a guest even if, Mark wasn't taking a week off, and you know Mark's not a big horror fan, but Mark Radlitz will be back for the next series and for the foreseeable future here on The Long Road to Ruin, and all of his regular podcasting will resume, I believe, mid-November is when he's going to be full swing back in the saddle again. But uh, always happy to guest host on this show or just be a contributor. I have been oh, a huge fan of this series for a while. Looking forward to Toy Story. I think Toy Story is the best trilogy on film. Period. End of discussion. Star Star Wars fans can suck it. You may very well be right. I can't. I can't really say that there's any extensive diminishing returns there. And you know, uh, quite frankly, it's going to feel good to talk about something a little more lighthearted for a little bit. But really, (laughs) hey, we just went through guys tearing each other apart with chains and hooks and pinhead and various centibites. I mean, Toy Story. Yeah, (laughs) there's a. But it'll be awesome. all in all, just like I said last week, and I'm not going to go down the whole list again this week. Don't worry about it. Thank you to each and every last one of you that tunes in on a regular basis. Thank you double if you hear the show and you turn somebody else on to it. Uh, I honestly am having just the time of my life doing this. And really, I want to do this until either it's just not fun for us anymore or until we run out of franchises and common threads through movies to talk about, whichever happens to happen first. So here's to hopefully another great 12 months of you guys tuning in every, tuning in twice every four weeks uh, to hear me scream fuck at the top of my lungs. Every now and then it's required. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it just is every now and then. And All I right, guess, thank- so... Thank you very much, Robert, for the several times you've been a guest on, on the show. It is always, always a distinct pleasure having you on. Anytime you need a guest host or you just feel like you need a third voice for something, um, you can always hit me up. I'm more than happy to be here. I get a kick out of listening, and I enjoy being on here just as much. And 
much like Sean, I'll be pulling for you guys to get another 12 months and then some. But that is going to wrap up this edition. So for Sean Comer, whose venting of anger has now left him a much happier and more zen person for the next couple of weeks. i got to find the right closing music. I don't know what Mark normally uses, so we'll just go out to Hellraiser theme again. So for Sean Comer... Oh, he uh, we'll go out to Hellraiser because I'm in charge this week. <laughs> Word. Uh, so for Sean Comer, who writes in the Music Zone and is just all-around great guy to have on these types of shows, I'm Robert Winfrey, your special interim guest host. I'll steal Mark's catchphrase because this is his show. So until next time, be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>